This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with former D1 American football player and US international rugby player, Andrew Ryland. He discusses his work with the NFL and how they look to support player development along their pathway, the importance of teaching proper tackling technique and how this can be done, as well as the gamification in learning skills. Please be part of the growth of this podcast by sharing it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. Perfect. So, Andrew, really appreciate you jumping on with me. Obviously, I know we've had a little catch-up off air there. Um, seems like you're all set for today and had a good good holiday period. Yeah, I really appreciate the uh, uh, the ask. Uh, obviously, topic I'm passionate about, so always enjoy talking about it. I'll always jump at a chance, but had a great holiday. Uh, same to, to you and yours, and kind of as we turn the new year, time to switch back on and, and get into the bit of uh, coaching. Yeah, no, exactly. And I think what this period always does for coaches, it allows you a bit of time to reflect because, as you'll know, the coaching world is always pretty busy and the sport itself is always busy. Um, so it's nice just for everyone to take a step back and reflect on what they did during the year and all that type of stuff, which I'm sure you would have done. Um, for people that maybe haven't come across you or haven't come across your work, do you just want to explain to people a whistle-stop tour of kind of your playing background and then where that's led to in, in the coaching and coach development capacity yeah so uh i guess the you know like most of us of, of our age i'll say grew up kind of in the the more multi-sport environment and played lots of sports as a kid and in, in high school uh was lucky enough to get an opportunity to play collegiately here in the states uh ended up actually being a, a dual sport athlete at penn state university uh, i was on the football team there uh I tell people very honestly, I have seven career starts. So I was a guy on the team. I, you know, I played in in every game over, I think, a three-year period. But I was, you know, a backup, a substitute, one of those kind of guys. All seven of my starts were due to injury. Uh, so let's be very clear. It was, you know, I started for two games. Somebody, you know, sprained an ankle. They got healthy. I, I went back to the the backup role. Uh, I was also a, a rugby player here in the States, uh, and I have a, a long family history in that game. Um, so, you know, I had been exposed to it very early on uh, and just didn't have the opportunity to play until much later. Uh, made the All-American team, which is our all-universities team. Uh, that is a team that actually gets together and goes on tour. Um, the national team coach at the time came along as a technical advisor and with my kind of high performance background from collegiate football and and doing well in collegiate rugby, thought I had some potential. I spent three years with the U.S. national team, uh, capped in both 15s and 7s, and uh, was in that pipeline. Uh, then uh, kind of retired uh, from competitive sport after uh, uh, realizing that I wasn't going to make the next World Cup, uh, just too old, too beat up. Um, too many surgeries and without a professional league here in the States, you know, the world cup was kind of the goal. So stepped away from, from playing and immediately jumped into a coaching role. Uh, you know, that's been my passion, been involved in multiple sports. My father was a coach. Uh, so got into coaching, coached in the collegiate sector, uh, the NCAA level, then uh, works an off field role in a collegiate athletic department, doing player development, uh, kind of trying to find my way within, within sport. 
Uh, ultimately, I had an opportunity at USA Football, which is the sports uh, governing body here in America. Uh, I've been there for 10 years now. Uh, my role has always been in the education department. So by title, I'm education and training. Uh, work a lot of coach development. Uh, probably, it sounds horribly uh, conceited, but, but best known for my work in contact skills. So do a lot of work on tackling. Uh, and preparation for contact, so how we prepare athletes for the rigors of the season and work on developing that robustness to handle contact year-round. And we deliver that program to coaches here so that they can uh, then deliver that program to their athletes. And kind of for some fun, I, I really enjoy kind of the consulting at the, the high-performance level. So working in the, the youth and high school game, uh, you know, where there's the most players and potentially the most numbers and impact. Uh, and then going up into the collegiate and NFL ranks for, you know, consulting and workshops and helping those programs. Uh, one, it gives you a new challenge. It makes sure you're, you're fresh. It challenges you. It, it keeps you sharp. And then, uh, being able to go up and down the landscape of the entire sport to me is really important because it, it gives you a, a well-rounded vision and, and helps you in the other areas by being able to tie back and see, uh, what's happening, what's going on, what's working, what are the new trends and, uh, hopefully we'll continue to do that and keep uh, pushing the envelope a little bit of, of bettering our coaches, our, our techniques, our styles, and how we prepare our athletes. Perfect. So there's loads of really good bits there, and I'm sure we'll come to, to most of it at some point in this conversation. I think the bit to start on for me is around the U.S. football stuff. So in terms of a remit for you, what is your guys' remit? What are you trying to achieve with this coach education, all that type of stuff? Yeah, so obviously our our charter is kind of to to drive kind of the development of the game. Uh like most sports, the the overwhelming numbers are are at the youth level. You know, that's where the most people play the the wide base of the pyramid. So we're really focused on coach education at that level and we do a large bit while it's not my direct role of kind of uh league and club support as well. So we don't run any leagues. We don't sponsor any competitions. We are an infrastructure support organization. That's how USA football operates as the governing body here in the state. So we work with existing clubs, leagues, and coaches to help provide the resources that's going to drive their development. It's going to grow and enrich the game. It's going to obviously hopefully keep the game incredibly strong. You know, we're, we're always looking at uh, participation, huge eye on retention, which is obviously uh, has a giant impact from quality coaching and uh, the youth's experience out there on the field. Uh, and then, you know, kind of providing what, what we call it is, is driving standards. So, you know, what are the uh, coach education standards? What, you know, what must a coach kind of have under their belt before they step out on the field? What are the major health and safety topics? And those sometimes can change year to year, you know, you don't want to uh, fly by the wind. You, you obviously have a, a core pillar, but as new things come up, you know, COVID is a great example. Obviously we found ourselves, you know, uh, having to produce and help leagues with lots of resources and practical application for managing that. And then, okay, now leagues back on, uh, our players may have missed an entire season. How do we help communicate ideas about detraining, uh, you know, the, we can joke about it, but youth may have sat on the couch for a year and not moved and not played and school was canceled. There was no PE. And now we're trying to reintegrate them into 
into a game. So how do we help coaches navigate that space? So uh, that's kind of how we we work is that, you know, we have a, a certification like a lot of sports governing bodies do. But we also have a lot of free resources and that infrastructure support everything from the coach uh, and player engagement opportunities, as I mentioned, camps and clinics and things uh, to, you know, help, help helping actually leagues uh, get up and, and get started. Uh, we offer about $2 million in grants annually uh, to provide equipment uh, for programs to kind of get started, uh, to purchase new equipment, to make sure helmets are in good working order. We have you know, specialty disaster relief grants or, if, you know, a, a tornado, a fire, a flood, and uh, there may be a, a league that has to fold, we would we would try to help them to help keep those opportunities open for kids. So wide ranging, but but really focused on, on driving that growth, development, and then participation and retention. So if we're looking at like a pathway for, for young people that want to play football within America, what does that pathway actually look like? Yeah, so... Great question. And, and one of the biggest challenges we've faced probably uh, in, in my 10 years, my time here. So um, as we mentioned, we don't run any organizations so we uh, or any competition, but we have what we call our football development model, which would be our version of, a, of an LTAD, long-term athlete development program, like so many sports have. Uh, one of the things we focus on hugely is multiple entry points and options. Uh, as a collision contact sport, um, not every youngster is going to be ready for that aspect at the same time. So, you know, what are the, what are our flag pathways and how do we get kids throwing, catching, developing athletic skills in a fun, engaging manner that has them fall in love with the game, uh, before we layer and add the contact skills? Obviously, like, like most sports, you know, we have, uh, varying game types as far as numbers and field spaces so you know to for the longest time and this may be new or interesting to, to people but american football here in the states uh your first experience was the full game there was there was not a small-sided game uh there were obviously rule modifications but you know we had 10 year olds and you know second graders playing on the same size field as the nfl players and it was the 11 man version of the game and we we spent a couple years really working education and, and outreach trying to to say like you know if you look at every other sport there's these modified game types there's smaller numbers small fields why don't we do that in football so we came up with a, a game that we call rookie tackle so we have a, a six seven uh an eight man version of the game obviously leading into the full 11 and then there's the various flag versions of the game. Uh, we don't mandate any of them. We, we try to be understanding of local, uh, local needs, local, uh, politics, if you will, uh, local challenges as far as maybe size and numbers of players. So how many game types is feasible to offer and try to work with the organizations to create their own pathway. So it may be flagged into a, eight man into an 11 man a, a larger league that has you know lots of teams in a metro area may go flag into six man contact into eight man contact into 11 man so there is a definitive pathway uh but there's a uh, wiggle room and options to kind of fit the needs as you can imagine a lot of our smaller communities with uh lower numbers of players some of them like the small-sided game because it's 
uh, a lot easier to field a team of say seven than it is a team of of eleven. But some of those uh, same organizations, the next town over, may say, you know, we don't have enough players in our organization to have to support four game types, and we may only be able to offer two game types. So we we try to be flexible while maintaining kind of those good long-term athlete development principles. And when they're then looking further afield, so once they do eventually get to that 11 v 11, um, yep. what age normally is that? I know that obviously it changes from place to place, but what would that normally be? And then in terms of going into high school, potential yeah. college, potentially NFL, what does that journey then look like? Great question. So uh, USA football is actually one of the youngest governing bodies. So football was played in America for over 100 years without a governing body. And so various governing bodies sprung up at the different age groups. So the high school uh, federation here in America is incredibly strong, and that governs uh, the high school sporting realm, which is really that uh, 14, 15 uh, through 18 year old. So for us, that'll be year uh grades nine through 12 and, and they have a very entrenched structure and i don't mean that in a negative way so we try to intertwine with that where we're looking at we have these various pathways that are going to go from kind of six through 14 and then they will be handed over to uh, the national federation of high school sports who is a very close partner of ours uh in fact i just finished uh before the holiday break a a new education course uh for them that'll be hosted on their website for their coaches, but it kind of shows the back and forth of sharing ideas and uh, the kind of the football specialists coming in to help uh, develop football within that larger uh, larger market. So they'll go to their high school and, and they'll play there. Um, again, we have a unique system in our, our all of our sports are, are school-based, which I think many people would know, but uh, football is not a club-based sport. You can only participate for uh, the school in which you are enrolled in. So we are, we call it a scholastic model, but we are 100% school-based. So you'll play for that school. Um, most schools will field three teams at the high school level. So uh, a ninth grade team, uh, which will be the youngest age group, and then a junior varsity, which will be an 11, and then the varsity, which will be 10, 11, and 12, uh, but obviously depending on on talent. And that's how they'll kind of have their own mini pathway within their school system. After the high school uh, is over, then, then if you're lucky enough, uh, you can receive an opportunity to play in college. We have uh, four divisions of, of college football here in the States. And again, it is scholastic based. Um, you can only play for the school in which you are enrolled as a student. So choosing that college uh, becomes a huge milestone in a football athlete's career where you are not only choosing your college and your education path, but you're playing opportunities at the exact same time, which is uh, challenging for an 18-year-old, as I'm sure everyone everyone can uh, can imagine. And those will move into the, uh, the, the collegiate space. Because we don't have that club system and because we are a scholastic-based sport here, 95 to 98% of all players will never play again past year 12. So once they leave high school, you know, you get a collegiate opportunity and those opportunities are limited or your playing career is done, which makes a, a huge impact on how the game is operated. If we're, if we're honest with ourselves, it becomes very much about talent ID and development and 
selection at a, at a very early age. And then, uh, so he said, we have, you know, anywhere from two to 4% that will go on to play collegiately. And then after your collegiate time is over, uh, you know, you have an opportunity to get drafted in the NFL to uh, play overseas or in Canada or any of these other professional leagues. But again, uh, of the of the top, you know, two percent that make it to college, then only the top one percent of those make it to the NFL. So if you look at NFL roster sizes and the number of teams at any given time, there's only fifteen hundred professional football players uh, in the country, you know, as far as in, in the NFL. So the, the pyramid gets very sharp, very quickly, uh, after the, after the high school ranks and that, you know, they kind of a cut off at the knees, if you will, but 98% are done. Then after five years, another 98% are done. And you're, you're left with that, uh, that, that cream of the crop in the NFL level. So that's why for us, kind of that pipeline of youth and keeping the high school game incredibly strong is so important because that's where the overwhelming majority of people's football experience will be and only the lucky few uh, get to progress. I mean, I, I wish we had more football playing opportunities for uh, collegiate aged athletes and, and adult athletes, but that's just not the system we, we currently operate in. So Instead of fighting some of those systems, uh, what, what we chose to do is, like you said, we work to integrate and support and partner with, you know, the existing high school federations or the existing collegiate opportunities and try to help them by providing a, a wider player pool and better develop op development opportunities uh, on the bottom, bottom half of that as it leads into that very definitive pathway. I guess that's why it's important for you guys at the start of their journey to make it uh, both educational in terms of athletes developing, but also fun. Because if it is that they get to the age of 14 and then end up not making junior varsity and then that's the end of their playing career, actually those seven years that they might have been involved in football or four years or two years, that's what they're going to reflect on as to what their personal living experiences are. So I'd imagine quite a lot of the work you do with your coaches and around obviously educational pieces in terms of how people learn and how you can maybe help them learn, but also how can we integrate some level of enjoyment into what they're doing as well? Yeah, spot on. Because the selection structure of our, our sports, especially at the high school to collegiate jump, is so abrupt, you know, that us trying to keep youngsters involved in the sport for as long as possible with as positive experience as possible is so important because I think we all know kind of the values, uh, the, uh, the positive benefits of being uh, active in sport, whether it's, you know, the studies that tell us youth that play sport in high school, graduate at a higher rate, get better grades and, and all those kind of things. So we do want to push people in, in it and we, we talk about both fun and fulfilling. Uh, that would be our two buzzwords. Um, uh, another one of our key taglines that I really like is let's make it a game before it's a sport. So trying to get kids to fall in love, have a great time, enjoy it. It's the game of football. At some point in your career, uh, it will become a sport, if you will, as far as um, it starts to become increasingly more professional, increasingly more win focused increasingly more dollars driven uh but we want it to be a game before it's a sport and that 
the kids or or youth experience, uh, whether we uh, want to admit it or not, I think it's it's truthfully is going to be driven by the coach. The coach sets the environment, the atmosphere, uh, building those relationships, and so it's a huge burden, but it, but it's also such a great opportunity to make sure that they're providing uh, that environment that allows kids to fall in love, to have a good time. And, and we say fun and fulfilling because if you are lucky enough to progress up through the ranks, I think we all know that, you know, your uh, high level conditioning sessions when your you know, heart beating out of your chest and your tongue is hanging and it's a 6 a.m. workout, we, we might not always call it fun, but that process can be very fulfilling. Right. And we're, we're proud of ourselves. We've accomplished a goal. So we kind of we kind of shift from the fun early side into uh, focusing a little more on fulfillment. Now, best coaching practice is obviously going to include some fun and some enjoyment in that process. But, um, you know, we want to make sure that we're, we're driving those things as well as obviously quality human development, you know, using sport as a vehicle to teach lessons on goal setting, overcoming adversity. Uh, physical health and well-being, you know, an active lifestyle. I think we would agree that good sporting experiences tend to lead to healthy, active adults. Uh, people that have a terrible sporting experience, you know, become uh, people who, you know, may go home and sit on the couch and, and, and not be interested in physical movement as an adult, which can impact uh, health outcomes. And, and so we want to make sure that we're driving all sorts of things that can then help someone become a fully developed person and the best person they can be. We, I commonly say that, you know, there's a, a myth that sport develops all these great character qualities. And sport is an inanimate object. It's a game. It's an idea. Sport is a vehicle and sport provides opportunities for quality coaches to kind of use that moment to teach life skills and, and, and overcoming adversity and discipline and teamwork and toughness, playing sport in itself won't, won't, won't do that. So that's on us to help guide coaches to then navigate that process and recognize and use those opportunities when they come. So I guess on that, and one thing that we've had in the UK that was challenging for a lot of people was around, um, I'm trying to think of a delicate way to say this, unhelpful touchline behaviors from coaches and or parents at times. And there's been a lot of push over here with the respect campaign from the FA, which was to leave referees alone so they could get on with their job without being yelled at and stuff. How do you guys manage that in your circumstances? Because as you said, because you're a relatively young governing body and there's a lot of different areas that people can do, be it LMV11 or, or 77 or, or what that looks like. Um, and obviously you're doing that coach education piece how do you get the coaches and parents to realize that actually little timmy who's 10 years old isn't playing in the super bowl and that game him winning there might not be the most important thing and actually him trying that pass when he's off balance or got intercepted for a pick six is a really good learning opportunity for him rather than something that has made your team lose and he, he deserves to be shouted out or something like that yeah i mean i i would venture to say that this is a challenge that every country and, and every sport is is currently facing. I think some of it has to do with this notion of the professionalization of sport younger and younger, 
Um, you know, whether it's big money clubs and, you know, people running tournaments that are, are now starting to garner, you know, huge respect and media coverage and websites and social media. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but, you know, these things have become much more in our face and, and recognition. And so people kind of get swept up in that, right? They're, wow, we won this 12-year-old tournament, or wow, we were all over the website, and, you know, the local news covered us, and uh, TV is here. So I think it becomes a, a natural emotion that as that almost professionalization starts to feel the way we're, we're taking on sport, that, that people get uh, caught up in it. So our education campaigns, which we drive at both coaches and then a uh, big, big push for us, obviously talking to the league uh, administrators and, and le the people that are running the leagues is, you know, what let's identify proper age specific kind of goals and outcomes for these different groups. And then the big thing is obviously the communication of that to the parents that are involved within within these organizations. Now, uh, anyone who's ever coached or taught knows that just because you set kind of your standards, your goals, and your principles on day one uh, doesn't mean there's not going to be flare-ups and problems later, but it gives you kind of a rock to go back to on, hey, remember, we said, you know, like that these are the goals. I, I think the other thing that that is huge on that is a true understanding of kind of that long-term athlete development player development model that kids are not mini adults like they're not shrunken down 25 year olds their understanding of the world is is very very different and the example that that i always give is you know when leagues make a rule that this age group isn't going to keep score right and that would be a, a common uh, change uh, leagues would make for younger age groups. Inevitably, the pushback is, well, the kids keep the score anyway. And, and my counter argument is always that keeping the score is very much different from understanding kind of the uh, perceived social benefits of wins and losses. So a youngster may keep the score and know that their team won or lost. But their internalization of that and what that means for their future, for their career, or even for their playing abilities is completely different, right? Than an 18 or 22 year old who gets, you know, beat on the day and says, like, I just wasn't good enough. I need to go back to the drawing board. We, you know, we need to solve these problems. 10 year olds care that they lost generally until snack is served, right? When the, the team parent comes with, with cookies and a juice box and all of a sudden, you know, they're running over to their parent and saying, like, can, you know, can little Johnny come play video games, spend the night? You know, they care for a very short amount of time. Like I said, the, the social impact of that just isn't there. We, we push a lot of education principles, meaning, you know, if we were to look at the same age athlete as a student, what sort of kind of social emotional curriculum would they be learning in school? So if an athlete is learning basic decision making, you know, with simple either or choices, then that's kind of where the game should be should be at. We should try to meet the athlete where they are. We should teach in an age appropriate manner. And that means kind of competition and winning and losing also needs to be framed 
in age appropriate manners. And I think, you know, everyone says things like, well, you know, kids need to learn how to win. They need to learn how to compete. We, we love those big terms. Well, that's like saying kids need to learn algebra. They, they do. But at what point are they cognitively mature enough for that actually to land and be meaningful? And until then, we can keep that thread kind of wins and losses, good, poor performance. But we just need to make sure that it's framed in an appropriate manner. So making sure our coaches understand that and are, are trying to drive that within their practices, their pre and post game talks and how they handle their athletes, uh, allowing coaches to have opportunities to address the parents, you know, uh, preseason and then during the season as well about staying true to our goals, understanding what our values are, understanding what the outcomes are, and then hopefully, you know, bringing it back to some, some quality uh, both research and data, but not everyone loves research and data. As we've learned over the past couple of years, people tend to be highly emotional. So how can we tell that same story in an emotional way using educational analogies uh, to make sure that parents are on board? And then league administrators obviously really have to support the coaches and, and most importantly, the officials. Um, we have a huge official shortage here in, in America in the game of football. Uh, it's becoming an ever-increasing challenge. And a lot of people believe, you know, there's kind of no hard data, but I, I think we could uh, go out on a limb here and say that the, uh, the experience for a developing official at these lower levels getting lambasted by, by full-fledged adults is not keeping them in the officiating pathway. And then when we get to the higher levels, we, we tend to see a lower number of qualified officials who have the experience and it's probably because they're being scared off or run off at an, at an earlier age and so i think part of that speaks to the ecosystem of sport that you know i'm in coach development but i can't be naive enough to think that good administrators and good officials aren't at equally important for our game to be successful and so sometimes i think we people uh can get so focused that player development is the key or coach development is the key. And we really need to make sure that we're keeping an open mind on the entire ecosystem that's going to allow the game to, to thrive. And that means some of our educational outreach is going to be directed at parents and the value of, of quality officials and treating them with respect. It's also going to be uh, highly driven by understanding the age and needs of the athletes and you know what you can do to support that growth and what is true kind of age appropriate growth now that sounds all great in theory and i think uh we would all agree like yeah nod your head perfect 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 uh the one thing that becomes most challenging is what we call the love goggles which is the only thing uh worse than beer goggles is uh many people have love goggles which means that when they see their own child and they want so desperately success, achievement, and a, a, a good outcome for their kid that they start to see the world very differently. They don't see a 10-year-old. They don't see a developing uh, youngster. They see the next superstar. They see the next champion. And so breaking through that emotional barrier, and like I said, that's why data can't be your only line of attack. You're going to have to attack this from a... Uh, an analogy, a uh, emotion, a almost a marketing campaign to hit it from as many sides as possible so that people can take a deep breath and, and step back and 
and see things clearly. And it's it's very hard. I have a I have a son who's eight who's seven years old who plays basketball and and soccer and baseball. And when you're on the sideline and they do well or they do poor, I mean, you can't help but feel a certain way. And, so, you know, I even myself have to take a deep breath and like, OK, go back to your knowledge base. Go back to what you do for a living. You know what's right. But that doesn't mean that 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 moment of emotion doesn't happen. And so to think that parents across the world and across sport won't do that is 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 foolish. But we need to make sure that we give them a, a solid foundation that when that moment happens, they can say, yeah, you're right. These are 10 year olds. These are 12 year olds. They're going to forget about it in a half an hour. Um, and it is a quality learning experience that's going to develop all of the things that I said I wanted that youngster to develop. Right. Why did you put your kid in sport? Oh, the great life lessons, overcoming adversity, teamwork, uh, discipline. Okay. But when a challenge happens, instead of yelling at the referee or trying to fist fight a coach, why don't we let that opportunity actually play out so that our child can develop a sense of overcoming adversity, of toughness, of sacrifice for a team and a greater cause, and commitment to getting better and improving? That's going to serve them much better in the long run. And so that was going to be part of my next question, which is, Obviously, we mentioned earlier the pathway for individuals, if they are able to go up the ladder, is very, very steep quite quickly. So how do you manage those two things, which is trying to help them understand that it is a long-term development journey, but them and, and the parents being fully aware of the fact that when they do get to that, there's a lot of milestones that come quickly. And actually, if you can get ahead of the game, and I put that in inverted quote, commas ahead of the game in terms of having success or notoriety or whatever that may help them to make those jumps further down the line how do, how do you manage that with parents yeah so a couple of things on on the physical side uh i think we have a nice anchor point in which we can root some of our our um delayed gratification uh aspects in which is simply puberty that until our athletes reach puberty and until they start to develop, like we have to be honest with ourselves. We know absolutely nothing about what this youngster is going to become, right? The, the short kid who's a little bit wider, uh, maybe we call him stocky or husky if we're trying to be polite and other terms probably get thrown around behind his back. How often has that kid hit puberty and grown and stretched and turned into like a, a slimmer, very athletic, very athletic person? Um, you know, the speed, the power, the muscular development that comes with puberty naturally uh, may take an athlete to a new stratosphere or suddenly all of their peers catch up. So I think one of the things we're, we're always pushing is just slow down until puberty uh you know at the highest level of sports there's um there's always outliers but there's also some general you know rules of thumb that there's there's not a lot of wide receivers that run a, a five second 40 yard dash there's not a lot of international wingers in rugby right that that are are five second guys right like it, if you don't have that speed like the game at the highest level will be challenging now Again, there's bandwidth. You can not be the quickest guy and still have huge success, but there seems to be some barrier to entry physically for our elite level sports. And so 
until your athlete is is developing like they're just playing the game and they should play a variety of positions they should develop a huge number of skills because what their best position ultimately is going to turn out to be is probably going to be driven by by puberty and their body size i think that's fair to say especially in rugby and football and our contact collision sports so let's manage that and then uh you know if we look at the the research and the studies kind of on biological uh in chronological age and then kind of look at uh maturity we understand that kids develop uh very differently and so yes there may be some youngsters that are highly mature and are are processing emotions at a a different level but there's also you know kind of 14 year olds that are, are going into the high school space that from a kind of a maturity level, a cognitive development level are behind their peers. And so we, we really have to meet the athletes where they are because the, as we say about older athletes retiring from sport, the, the person, the one person who's undefeated is mother nature. And well, if, you know, like if your son or daughter is not cognitively developing or physically growing at that age, like there's not a lot you can do about it. You know, banging the drum of hard work and discipline is going to be meaningless until that message is resonating with them because of their understanding of the world. Um, so we have to meet them where they are. We have to be patient. We have to see clearly, and that goes back to the love goggles idea of where are our athletes? Where are our children? What are they ready for? What are they capable of? And we can address the key issues at every time in the athlete's life, but how we address them has to be remarkably different. The, I think, simplest analogy and example that I always use is, is nutrition, right? Our high-level athletes have to be well-educated on, on nutrition. And so at our youngest age groups um, within our, our character development programs that, that we provide, we're addressing nutrition you know, with eight-year-olds. But we're saying things like make sure there's lots of colors on your plate, you know, and, and berries and strawberries and reds and blues and greens. And, you know, we're not talking about the caloric value of fat versus protein and, and making sure you have enough carbohydrate to reload from your previous activity. So I think you can keep, again, the thread of the themes that are important. Just make sure they're presented at the age appropriate or age appropriate level. So, like I said, what does discipline mean like for a youngster that may mean doing your chores and you know what i mean they if if uh, our child still forgets to brush their teeth every night the idea that they're going to be highly disciplined and staying on sides is is probably a losing cause so we'll continue to teach it in an age-appropriate manner until at some point we say like hey we should have the memory the commitment and the ability to remember to do certain tasks and then we'll address the same issue but very differently did that answer the question? Yeah, no, it did. I think it's really interesting what you said about making it age appropriate and also across the board as well in terms of it being at home, at school and in a sporting context. And uh, if they haven't got discipline in other areas of their life, they may struggle for it there as well, which I think is a really interesting point. One thing that you, you did mention that I think was quite interesting was around the, I guess, identification and understanding around early maturation, late maturation, all that type yeah. of stuff. How good a grasp do you think there is within football of 
you know, your late maturers from college coaches who go out to high schools and see that actually there's a player there, but at the moment he just hasn't got enough bulk on to compete with people in his age group or actually he still hasn't reached maturity the right amount of maturity stage is making him a little bit less effective or actually he's a big player, but we think he might get caught up because at the moment he's dominating from his size and those skills don't transfer. How readily available is that information and how used is it by college coaches, NFL coaches, etc.? Yeah. So really interesting topic. I think it is highly thought about. It is highly talked about. Um, but currently it's um it's probably done so at a manner more based on tradition than kind of a, a little bit harder science you know it would be very common to hear a coach say something about like you know look at his face like he's still kind of he's got that young face he's still got the, the baby fat you know what i mean like he's got some maturing left to do and it's it's not based on I don't know, anthropometric measurements or peak height velocity or any of those kind of more scientific things. It's kind of that old school coaching eye and tradition that's been been passed down. You know, I, I know I've been in rooms talking uh, collegiate, you know, coaches, recruiting, talent ID, the high school players, and, oh, like, look at his frame. You know what I mean? I bet you he could carry, you know, this much more mass and he'll be fine. Well, he, he may, but that that increased mass may change his movement patterns, you know, to the point that he's no longer very skilled or he's too slow to be effective and that he's actually being effective because he has great things. So it's, it's thought about, it's talked about, um, it is attempted to be done. There's still some, some wiggle room in there as far as I think, uh, specificity and accuracy. And I, I don't think that's probably just American football. I think, you know, some of the new research on, on like peak height, uh, velocity, uh, bio banding in soccer, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of really new, exciting, emerging things that I think we'll, we'll start to see and come out. I have a, a good friend who, who's done uh, a lot of work with kind of anthropometrics and kind of bone size, uh, looking, you know, things as far as, you know, how much weight could an athlete potentially uh, carry as they develop and as they grow. So there's some exciting areas. Uh, and I think in the next 10 years, it'll really, really take a big springboard. Uh, but people are trying to address it. I think just, a um, uh, with a, a little bit of, uh, a, a little bit of experience, a little bit of passed on wisdom and hopefully a little bit of luck at the, <laughs> at the current time. So it's prevalent. It's just not, uh, maybe overly accurate. I think, like you said there, it's quite a common problem across sports in terms of we have all this information now, but how is it actually implemented in the right ways or used in the right way, which I think is interesting. Um, and I guess from you, and this can lead us on to a slightly different conversation, but how do, we, how do you manage this in what is a very contact-based sport? So obviously, naturally, rugby and then football itself is contact-based. And I've seen old footage of Gronk back back when he was in high school and then college and it was literally a man against boys I mean it still is at the NFL so you can get an idea of what it is like there but how do you go around managing that contact situation and then for you more specifically what type of work do you do with tacklers to try and gain advantages of understanding where to hit in the body and what that looks like and how you can prepare yourself for contact 
Yeah. And so again, it, it's probably amplified in our contact and collision sports. Uh, but I don't think it's, um, unique to contact and division sports, but early matures, uh, whether they're bigger or whether they, you know, start to develop that, that muscular ability tend to be, uh, really good early performers, you know, based on speed, power, whatever it is. And that may be, you know, speed on, on a soccer field, uh, but in collision sports, that exercise, that extra weight, that early maturing often lends itself to early success. Uh, based on physical dominance and we can definitely get carried away with that i think uh you know there's a lot of of really interesting looks at how late matures have to survive based on tactical understanding and skill development and then if they do mature and catch up physically now they have a skill set that the other player didn't have right and it's, uh because it can be very hard to convince a young dominant player that like you're not always going to be this way and so you need to like make sure you're spending as much time on your techniques and, and tactical understanding for later years you know i can remember my father telling me as a basketball player that i needed to learn to do x and i'm thinking well until someone can stop y why why would i i'm you know i'm gonna keep y is undefeated i'm 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 winning like i'm doing well uh you know, I'll face that challenge when it when it comes. Like I just wasn't ready to hear that message from a shorty level. So again, that goes back to kind of how it all intertwines. So it is, it is huge. The general question of how we address it—that's one of the areas where where we try to address it through our entry points and options as far as pathways. Understanding that you know, if we say contact is going to start at ten. Not every 10 year old is going to be ready for contact. And so you have two choices. You have, um, put an athlete who's clearly not ready for the sport or the contact into the sport and hope that they don't have a terrible experience and stick with it. Or is there another option? Can we, through our partnerships, through our league, through our community, you know what I mean? If an athlete truly isn't ready for, like, can they, is there an older age group of, non-contact or you know in a kind of that strict pathway it's this age group plays this style then they move to this style then they move to this style well maybe we need a contact version that uh is concurrent the entire pathway so that uh an athlete who is clearly not ready for contact can still play uh, a flag version of the game or maybe someone comes to the game late uh and there's a, a parental uh fear uh, of contact and them not being ready. So you're 12 years old, but it's your first year. So actually we're gonna allow you to participate in our non-contact concurrent track, get a year under your belt of running, jumping, tracking, you know, uh, passing, catching basic skills. And next year you can you can join the rest of the, the contact cohort. Uh, works better in large organizations, obviously, that can field multiple game types at the same age groups. Uh, more challenging in smaller communities where they may not have enough players to run multiple game types, but we think that's a, a great option that the, the pathway and the cutoff points of when contact starts, you know, needs to be a little bit blurry. And I think some of our research on, again, going back to bio banding and things, the, you know, the general rule that there's that two year window, both above and beyond that a 12 year old can be a, can be a 14 year old or a 10 year old. Uh, lends us to think that we we need to address that. 
And then going to the contact part, um, one of the one of the programs that we developed, I think, two years ago, was we called our Prep for Contact curriculum. And what it what it looked at doing is uh, identifying some of the physical and psychological aspects and barriers to contact, and how can we present those two athletes in gamified, uh, challenging, fun activities that'll allow them to break down some of those barriers. Uh, so I've said this before on a, on a couple podcasts, but I, I think it holds true. You know, in our modern society, uh, personal space, personal bubble, you know, where people aren't normally playing tackle sports on the playground like I did when I was a kid, you know, in school, we're, we're staying out of each other's personal space, a little more litigious society, uh, gym classes and recess may not be doing those types of rough and tumble activities. Uh, you know, parents in the house are telling you to keep your hands off your sister and stop fighting with your brother. And now all of a sudden sport is the first time you are allowed in someone else's personal space. And some guy with a beard, like who looks like me is telling you, you should do it with speed, aggressive and enthusiasm. And all of a sudden you go, whoa, 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 I, we've, we've missed a step here. So the simple idea of two players leaning on each other, kind of that, that friction, that space, the, the you're breathing on each other, you're sweating. It's really uncomfortable. Like if I'm not comfortable in the spaces in which particular contact skills occur, I'm probably never going to fully engage in that actual skill because the environment is something that I don't like. So we can do some push-pull games, some grapple games. We can get people kind of stress inoculated to friction, to battle, to push-pull. Uh, uh, then we can start to break down some of those psychological barriers and gain comfort in where those spaces occur. Uh, if an athlete doesn't like the idea of falling to the ground, there's a lot of skills that are that they're not going to fully engage in, right? It could be uh, a slide tackle, it could be a diving catch, it could be right a a block or a tackle or a, a breakdown where we're going to end up in that position. So you know, basic tumbling activities, getting kids not only comfortable with the, the idea of going to the ground but developing tools to effectively manage going to ground. It's amazing how when someone is now cleared up of fear of, a, of what's going to happen at the, uh, at the end of the play, it kind of unlocks their ability to aggressively engage in the play. So we're big on, on that. We not only need to address the physical sides of things like, uh, you know, postural awareness, uh, is a great one where it doesn't even have to be strength and power. Like uh, I think we've all been in a coaching environment with youngsters where you're, you're telling an athlete, like, you know, I, once you're back flat, if they can't kind of kinesthetically feel what flat back is in their own body, they're never going to be able to get in that position. Your coaching cues, your verbal words are meaningless if they can't feel it and then adjust themselves to that position. So they need to develop something we call postural awareness. When is my back flat? When is it rounded? When am I upright? When am I parallel to the ground? Just being able to control my spinal position is a huge impact on how I teach technical skills. So going, going back to some of those LTAD principles, if I want you to do a particular thing in a tackle, but you lack 
uh, some underpinning physical quality, it's going to make it really difficult. So let's address those physical qualities. So I think we we came up with 12 core physical traits that, that we wanted to develop. And then we created games and activities around those traits. We came up with some psychological principles, uh, you know, like comfort and friction, personal spaces. And we developed games and activities that we could do to try to develop those things. Now, in our football development model program, uh, we advise that we start to introduce these developmental games even in non-contact versions of the sport. So if we're playing flag football and, and contact is a penalty, we should still be playing push-pull games and doing tumbling and grappling as part of the physical development section of our practice plan uh, to help build up, build up those athletes. And then as athletes move into the contact version of the sport, obviously we want to continue to build those skills, both physical and psychological. Uh, but we're going to address the, the tackle itself. And, uh, I think that, you know, people have been teaching tackling for a long time. There's many different ways of doing it. But if we're honest with ourselves, there are technical models that are better than others. And there are some technical models that, uh, are going to allow us to, uh, do our absolute best, right? The games are chaotic but do our absolute best to reduce things like uh, uh, head collision or, or contact to the head. So we're going to make sure the technical model is right, uh, that it's, you know, that it, that's locked in, that, that athletes are being given quality instruction, uh, that they are progressing physically into that. So they're able to do those, those physical techniques. And then, uh, you know, I think some of the things that are becoming more common in some of the skill acquisition literature, but about like, you know, variability and matching uh, the correct uh, correct skill to the situation uh, actually has huge health and safety impacts when it comes to something like tackling, where if I were to only teach what in football we would call a form tackle and in rugby might be considered a choke tackle, but I'm a very small player who lacks strength and power like that's going to end pretty poorly for me in a lot of situations. So if I can introduce, we'll say multiple, multiple tools where we have a choke tackle and we also have a chop tackle and we also kind of, you know, we have multiple, uh, I can have a drive finish where I, you know, create leg drive and try to knock you back. But I also have a roll finish where I can kind of do that gator roll and, and take your legs out from underneath you and use centrifugal force instead of overpowering force. Well, now I have some tools at my disposal. And if I have tools at my disposal, one, I can find something that normally works really well for my body type, or, or two, I can use a, a better tool for the right situation where, hey, this giant person is coming at me. I'm probably going to strike a little bit lower. And instead of trying to overpower him, I'm going to use my roll technique and just put him on the ground. Or here, I have an equally sized player and we're in a, a really small space and uh, it seems to be a great situation for me to be able to, you know, kind of strike through the, uh, the lower chest and, and execute that kind of traditional upper body knockback, you know, choke style tackle. Great. Let, let's give them the tools so that they can be in a successful situation. You know, the, the old analogy, if, if you're a hammer, everything's a nail. When you only have one tool, sometimes we're forcing athletes, uh, into a technique that they're uncomfortable with. Uh, they're underpowered for, 
or that uh, doesn't fit the right situation. And when they try to force it is, I believe, when we often put ourselves in some some really poor, poor positions. And how do you teach that? Obviously, you mentioned earlier around doing a lot of game based stuff with the younger ones to get them comfortable being in someone else's space. How do you go around teaching those types of techniques? So, so I did a little bit of research on you and some of your, your Twitter stuff earlier. There's some really good examples of people, you know, going underneath and driving around the waist and pushing the person back. There's another example of an individual who's got one half of his body under pressure from alignment. He managed to stretch out with one arm, kind of wrap it and take the, the half back down. So how do you go around um, teaching these different types of techniques to your players? Yeah, so I, I think it starts with gamification and, and simple goals. So, you know, you can do a lot of things. Like we would do a lot of start uh, entry-level drills with, you know, a, a hula hoop, a, a small, a box of, you know, four cones to make a box or even a line where we're going to put two players engaged um, in whatever, you know, varying positions. You know, we freely admit, like, you know, I put like to put players shoulder to shoulder, chest to chest, uh, side to side, you know, so we have hip and shoulder, we're aligned and we're pushing laterally. We'll go back to back. Again, general athlete development, uh, multi-planar, multi-movement patterns. And we're going to play some games where, hey, we're going to do this for six seconds. And whatever side of the line we end up on, you know, that's the winner or they get a point or, you know, those sort of things. So we're learning to push and pull and win the space. Because for me, winning the space is kind of a a bigger principle of a lot of our contact skills, whether it's blocking, tackling, uh, work at the breakdown, you know, across a variety of sports. If we can move an opponent to win a particular space, that's often the goal. But that doesn't have to be done in a block, tackle, or ruck. That can be done with your job is to get out of this box and you have six seconds to do it. And Billy's job is to keep you in. And he's allowed to grapple you and hold you and push you and move you. So we're we're kind of hiding the hard work, uh, which is one of my favorite terms. Can I hide the hard work behind some fun in a game? And can my principles, such as moving another human being, uh, resisting movement from another human being, or winning a particular space stay true? And then once we get to that point, we can start to explore uh, movement patterns. Because again, with the youngsters especially, uh, we don't have to be as sport skill specific. You know, we get much more transfer and carryover with young athletes from general means. An advanced athlete may need very specific means, but kids, you know, get benefit out of all those things. So we're going to push and pull and learn balance and resisting forces and driving forces and creating, creating movement there. All right. Fantastic. Right. Like now we've got some strength. We've got some balance some some core stability, some, acknowledgement of where my posture is and I'm learning how to move another human being in a super fun way you know what I mean that's that's uh not even doesn't even feel like the sport it feels like a push-pull warm-up game it, it feels like something that's completely different now I can use those uh things to become anchor points for when we teach the the technique so now when we get into a tackle you know what I mean we're gonna say hey remember when we were doing that push game and if somebody's pushing you this way uh, you know, you have to brace, you know, and you're going to push off this leg and lean back into them so that you can fight the force and not get moved, right? Well, I want you to do that exact same thing. Now we're just going to, as we say, sharpen the sword. 
with maybe uh, a football technique. So why don't you try it with your hands here? And that allows this arm to be free. And if you have one arm free, then like you can start to initiate the tackle. And so we just try to use these building block approaches where we're learning kind of, I would call them the, their fundamentals in my terminology, but those big principles. And then we'll try to apply those to some skills or some techniques. And then we'll start to get a little more open and chaotic from like a skill acquisition standpoint. And that would for us would be the movement into skill. So what are the principles the athlete needs to know? And how can I hide that in, uh, like I said, a game or an activity uh, that's hiding the hard work and hiding the battle and, and feels like, you know, me and my best friend who got paired up doing something super cool and awesome and having a good laugh. And then if I do that well, can I refer back to that during my other teaching? Like feeling from pedagogy, but like scaffolding those learning principles so that now that applies to some of the other things that we do with a more specific technique. And how does that look at the older levels? Obviously, I know you did a little work, a little bit of work in the college age groups and stuff. And obviously, if you're looking at that foundations for the younger ones, when you're then looking college and obviously for some athletes go to the top level in professional football how does that work in terms of understanding what foundation and scaffolding they have and then I guess looking at the outcome of it so if I give you an example there may be a player who one coach will say gets knocked off the off balance quite a lot with first contact with alignment but he's still very good at setting the edge. And actually, when someone tries to run outside him, he's able to get something in the way to bring the, the runner down. The outcome is a very good outcome, but maybe the technique isn't exactly what the coach would want or teach. So how do you go around identifying what would work and what can continue to work and maybe be a nuance or something different that that player does that gets the outcome you want compared to, obviously some other athletes that might not have all the foundations you want, but they can do some kind of textbook if you like. Yeah. So a, a couple things there. I think one of the things is, uh, you know, there has to be some, some honest and clear evaluation of kind of the low hanging fruit. And uh, the story, <laughs> I always love the story, but uh, Buddy Morris, who is a, famous probably world-renowned strength coach and is the strength coach at the Arizona Cardinals now tells a story about a player struggling within contact skills and the coaches of a sport coaches saying that he they thought he needed like more core strength because the way he was getting moved and the buddy was like this he played five years of college football at a top program he got drafted in the NFL. The one thing I can promise you is his core strength is fine. You know, like physically, he has the core strength that's required to do this. So what we're really looking at is kind of an application error. And so I think that's where a lot of coaches can uh, not deliberately, but make a misread of the situation that, you know, what is the low hanging fruit? Like, are, are these athletes really underpowered? Like, and then you may have an athlete who, let's say, was a very speed-based player. And so strength is still a little bit of a challenge, and they're getting moved off the ball. And maybe we look at some of his strength numbers, and we look at his game style, 
And we think actually their low hanging fruit is some strength increases at the upper levels. That's very uncommon, right? Like that the players lack the physical tools. It becomes more an application based air. And that's where those same games and, and sometimes we'll use even the exact same games can become incredibly valuable because it becomes the learning environment that allows them to explore and feel and get the the requisite experience of, okay, this is good posture. This is bad posture. When my posture is changed, here's how I get back into a strong position. You know, we're trying to accumulate kind of that pattern recognition, that kinesthetic feel, those repetitions. We also want to do so in a way that limits total collision load, right? Because uh, whether it's a rugby player or a football player, like that, obviously there's great value in our, our real work, but we also want to manage health and safety and freshness. So we limit the collision load. So sometimes some of these games, if programmed well, uh, because we're starting pre-engaged, can be a high force battle that'll force kind of an application of of postures and strengths um, without having a high collision load. And, and that's obviously a, a key benefit. And then what we, we learn is the, the player learns through guidance, obviously, and through the experience that here's the positions I need to be in with my body type and my physical abilities to be able to hold the line or to be able to withstand, you know, this block. As you mentioned, I'm, I'm getting knocked off the line. Okay, well, I'm a speed-based player and I'm great on the edge, but when I come out of my stance and, and really look at some of those speed mechanics, like speed mechanics, I'm putting myself in a position where my knees aren't bent enough and my hips are too high and I'm getting beat by power. So I need to learn what are my good power positions and what are my good speed positions. And then as I grow as a player and get more experience, I can seamlessly move from power position to speed position back to power position as needed on the field. That sounds really complicated, doesn't it? And so you go, well, how do, how do we learn to do that? We learn to do that through some of those competitive based scenarios, which if I don't get in a good power position, I lose. Or if I don't, you know, hit my speed, then I lose the drill. And so, you, you know, we go back to, to talking about winning and losing or, or bad play, you know, getting negative, but it's really a learning experience. You know, that contextual learning of if I do X, I win. And if I do Y, I lose inside of a, a game or an activity becomes an incredibly powerful learning stimulus, right? All of a sudden, I realized what positions led me to win very quickly. And I start to think that I'm going to like these positions and I should try to get in them quite a bit. And as long as those align with kind of our core teachings, then that's 100% what we want to do. The other thing that, that we like at the advanced levels is with the length of the offseason, particularly in football, which uh, in the collegiate sector, it can be like 12 to 16 weeks, I think, in the summer. And in the NFL sector can be like 20 to 22 weeks. If you don't have any contact stimulus or, or any tackle training for that long of a period, uh, you're going to have huge skill decay. And contact is a physiological stimulus. I think the research from uh, rugby league mostly, but on how 
uh, contact impacts, muscle damage, uh, muscle soreness, rate of perceived exertion. Uh, we, we need to start to periodize and develop that maybe the same way we do speed and conditioning so that the first week of camp, our athletes are prepared for, uh, some of the physical load and physical battles that are going to occur. Uh, because otherwise, if you go, if you can imagine going from, you know, weight training only and doing no, you know, physical skill, physical contact for 12 weeks, your first week at camp, you are going to be so sore and so beat up and so miserable that even if you don't miss time due to injury, your second week of training is probably not going to be all that high quality. So we want to try to build some resilience, you know, the same way we would with hamstrings or with uh, conditioning so that they're, they're ready for the physical battles uh, of, of that work. And, and so we do, we use the same terminology prep for contact for the program uh but at the youth level it's preparing them for the introduction to this new crazy you know challenging stimulus and at the advanced level it is more about preparation for the season the same way we would look at kind of general physical preparation and so looking at it from a talent id perspective how do you analyze which players i guess fit the kpis of your team and and the position that they may play obviously you mentioned earlier that it gets to a point where actually they need to play loads of different positions so they get loads of different techniques post puberty we can then start saying actually he might be a left tackle or he might be a outside linebacker or he might be a free safety so how do you go around identifying which players are suitable for your scheme one because obviously that's going to play an effect if you're playing a three four defense that changes yeah. to, to playing a four three and then off the back of that which of them are exhibiting some of the skills that would be relevant for someone in that position in your scheme yeah great question because this is an area that i've i've had a lot of really good conversation with with coaches on and if you follow football, um, there's been over the past probably, you know, 10 years, some kind of some newer defensive ideas that have come out that have become quite popular with like hybrid positions and, you know, multi-skill set players and moving away from a little bit of the tradition. So the first thing that, that we do is, is you kind of have to wipe your, wipe your brain of tradition and all the things you've been told your whole life. And one thing I tell coaches to do is to, you know, take a deep dive into their scheme and their playbook and be very specific. Ask what you ask that position to do. You know, not the, uh, I don't know, the, you know, this position is supposed to be the long arm guy and this is the guy that's good in space because he's your, you know, your pulling guard or whatever. Like those are all the stereotypes. But okay, in our scheme, what do we ask this position to do? And then, you know, you, you look at some of the film and you start to look at the most common situations, right? So what are the challenges that this position often gets put in? So if we're looking at a two linebackers, right? One linebacker may need to be really good at uh, sorting through the shrapnel and the traffic and playing in the box and finding a ball carrier who's hidden behind a bunch of giant people. And then the other guy is out covering a slot receiver and he needs to be really good in space and sometimes it's as simple as you know when you're looking at your physical qualities and we we want to boil it down to i think physical qualities because it's it's sometimes easier but simply asking 
who is the best at that skill? Like, who is the best player on our roster at finding the ball in tight, confined spaces with huge amounts of traffic? Like, maybe that player is actually best for that position, even though he's not as tall or shorter or, you know, than the traditional guy. And who is our best player in space? And who can, who is our best spatial tackle player? Can we get him in that situation as often as possible? And all of a sudden you realize that like, well, even though he looks like guy or position Y traditionally, his skill set fits what we ask him to do in there. So I'm a big believer that uh, the KPIs should be highly skill-based and then looking at who best can fit those skills. I, I think uh, Micah Parsons for the Dallas Cowboys might be a, a great current example as someone who has a very unique skill set kind of rushing the passer, even though he's listed as a linebacker and that's what he played, you know, all through college. And they just put him all over the field in positions where he's going to get to do a pass rush <laughs> and they try to find guys that he can win, you know, that's why they scout and do all that stuff. And he's putting up amazing numbers. So what are the skill sets? And then what are the, uh, where does that fit within our defense and who on our roster has those things or for talent IDing, right? Yes, like I said, there seems to be some physical barrier to entry. There's not a lot of 100 kg props. Like at some point, there's a physical barrier to entry. But if they've met kind of that minimum threshold, like, and and I say minimum because I say we we all know the danger of averages, right? That like, you know, my, my head could be in the freezer and my feet can be in the oven. And on average, I feel totally comfortable. Like, but I'm I'm going to be not a happy camper. So danger of averages is that like what are the minimum thresholds and then do they have the skill set to match what we want to do and are you know are they skilled enough that they can execute it against quality competition i think that's where um that intersection of of physical kpis versus actual abilities uh is a really interesting really in, in intersection like i said that it's you know, there's not a lot of five, five second, uh, 40 guys, uh, playing wide receiver, but there's four, eight guys in the Hall of Fame. So if they can meet that minimum threshold and they're really good at doing what we want to do in our offense, I'm all for it. How, how big a part do coaches play in that compared to your scouts? Cause I, I'd imagine if, if you're someone going into a, a program and you go this is where we are now this is the players we've got in the building and this is where I want to be three years from now that could be very different so I look at someone like the Patriots are very good at it they zig when everyone else is zag so they went away they had obviously Aaron Hernandez and uh, Gronk they then moved away heavy running base and now they've got kind of come back to two tight ends and it, it changes they seem to zag a zig when everyone else is zag so how important is it that coaches have a say of, okay, this is the linebackers that are coming out of college, for example, or coming out of high school. Here are our options. And although at the moment our outside linebackers do this role, in an ideal world, in our scheme, this is actually what we want them to do. So I want to get this player because projecting forward, this is what we want our team to look like. Is that quite a common conversation or, or the are the departments quite fragmented and then the general manager is the one that ultimately has to kind of 
kind of combine all that information together? I would say <laughs> that's a, a great question. And I think the, the answer to that question tells you a lot about the really successful organizations and the ones that are struggling. You know, uh, I think the, you know, the idea of the lack of silos and kind of the high performance departments and the way things are going across all sports and trying to be more integrated ha has shown us kind of how important that is. And clearly the best programs, uh, do that. Um, I, I know they're not having a great year, but if you would look at, uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers or, uh, the in the Baltimore Ravens coming to mind as well, like they always seem to have players that fit their mold, their style and what they do. So it appears that their, you know, their general manager and their scouting and, and their programs are highly aligned towards like their values and their, their skill sets and those kind of things. And then you see other programs that, uh, obviously don't seem to have that, uh, that ability. They're not as consistent. Uh, maybe year to year, you, we see them like, you know, have taking a draft choice on, a complete, uh, complete kind of out of the blue guy that, especially the one that like tested really well in the combine and has one really flashy thing and we just can't get over it. And I, so I think that's what, what celebrates or what separates organizations. Now to the other question about the three year kind of growth, I find that to be one of the most fascinating questions of how different organizations are attempting to do things. So as we know, coaches are are often told right that the best coaching is about matching your scheme to your player's ability but coaches also have a ideal vision maybe of the style they would like to play so i think sometimes those three to four year protocols where you see a coach who is working particular schemes or players or styles because he's trying to put them in the best position while simultaneously scouting drafting or signing free agents that lean towards maybe a different style that they hope to play is a really interesting balance because you see um people do it a little bit differently i think you see it more in the in the collegiate ranks where a coach will come in and just go full sale change and almost like take it on the chin for a year you know what I mean? Like they're, they're going to change everything. They change the, you know, let's say we go from a, a four down to a three down front and we don't have a lot of guys that fit that mold and they, they take it on the chin for a year, but they're, they're almost totally happy to have the players get their noses bloodied and, and learn at the win loss record as they start to go through this process of recruiting and signing and finding players and transfer portals that fit their new style. In the NFL, I think you see a little bit, a little bit more of a mix. Um, it, not, not everyone is good right at it, but where they're, uh, they're trying to play to strengths while simultaneously kind of building towards, you know, Hey, in free agency, we want to target X kind of player. But right now we have a bunch of Y kind of player. And so sometimes you get these seems to be a little wacky tactical, uh, situations because the the coaches are in that flux but uh that's why i love when you mentioned that three-year process because i think sometimes it can be super interesting to watch that change and develop um over time as as 
as players try uh, try to get that accomplished and try to do it. And I think Michigan State in the college football realm is probably a, a really good example. Where I I believe they went two and seven or two and nine last year, uh, and they signed a ton of transfers out of the transfer portal but like targeted some very specific positions and some very specific needs and had a very successful season. So they clearly had a vision uh, and they clearly went out and, and found players that by all accounts appear to have met that vision based on their success. So that's kind of a, an interesting case study to me on, on how teams can do that in one year with the, you know, free agency, with the transfer portal, with the different signing signing windows you you may not have as many programs taking the long-term approach you you tend to get a lot of wholesale change this is you were talking then i was trying to google it but i couldn't find it was i think the seattle seahawks did it in pete carroll's first year from memory as well i think he went through a high level of free agents um and i remember seeing an interview with him where he basically said in his first team meeting he um asked I think all people just to stand up and then sit next to someone they wouldn't normally sit next to. And you just watch the room to see which of them would do it, which of them wouldn't do it. And kind of thinking around the ones who didn't do it, you got rid of. He was like, if I can't, if I'm asking you to do something simple like that, like, and you're not willing to do it. And I, I, I seem to remember, and I could be wrong, but he went through a high level of free agents in one year in particular, just looking for the right kind of characters and people that he wanted in the building. So then obviously try and kickstart that process. I think it is a really interesting one. And maybe like, like you said, the successful ones do have that coordination between the two, between the recruitment department and the coaching department. Maybe the ones that aren't so successful are the ones that don't have that. And you end up with um, a, a running back when you actually need a defensive tackle, you end up with a wide receiver who's five, eight, even though you wanted one that was six, four. So uh well, and I think we we know too, like your point, the 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 defensive end, the edge rusher, and the wide receiver. You know, those positions are splash positions, and sometimes the you know someone with huge numbers gets just gets somebody's eye, and it you know it forces I shouldn't say forces, but it creates a decision that they didn't actually want, and and some people are are really uh really good. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, if you look across all sports. Talent ID is not something we're great at. And this is not just football. I think everyone from every sport would tell you that like, you know, there, there's so much at play. We mentioned like the, you know, obviously you have all the physical KPIs and barriers to entry. Uh, you have the absolute, you know, speed guy that becomes the object of kind of our infatuation. And that happens in every sport, right? We, we love a winger. We love a wide receiver. We love a, uh, you know, so anybody in the soccer field that can, that can do that. And so we, it pulls us. And then we have the scheme and the tactics and how we fit the skills into it. And then you have all the culture and personality. And so it's so highly complex that there's some great examples. But I think overall, if we look at sport, we go, man, we're we're batting like 50 percent. Like we're we're not actually as good at it as we think, because it is it is so highly complex. And I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, if it was just a physical we'd probably be really good at it. Uh, if it was just the the techniques and skills involved with our system, we'd be pretty good at it. But human nature, human psychology, I mean, we, we laud the coaches who are excellent at managing those things. But it's still incredibly tricky to get uh, that number of adults um, locked in, committed together, 
and build it. And that's why you, you know, we celebrate those coaches that, that do such a great job of it because even highly successful coaches like can have huge struggles in that area because you, uh, I think the coaching, uh, playbook just has so many chapters as far as your tactics, your techniques, your, uh, talent ID, your, your, your physical development programs. And then you have to be a psychologist and an educator and a master team builder. And you go like, holy cow, that's a lot of things for one person to be really great at. And I think that's why uh, departments are being built a little bit differently now and bringing in experts and trying to break down barriers. But, uh, you know, no one seems to have cracked the code. I mean, except for um, maybe Nick Saban, who's had probably the longest run of success uh, going uh, in a while. Like, you know, he, he's doing something right, but there's a, you know, so many, so many challenges that everyone, everyone is trying to learn. It's just so many areas to develop. And, and I had a conversation today with somebody on, on psychology and it's amazing how many coaches almost tend to follow what we would call pop, pop psychology, you know, with the quick little blurb you get in the, the newspaper or the magazine about, you know, it gives you three lines. New study shows that people that do X are more likely to do Y. And now coaches are saying, yeah, you know, you got to get all our players to do like we've got to get all our players to do X because it leads to Y. And we become pop psychologists and not maybe great uh, practical applied psychologists. And uh, I'm not saying it's good or bad because it, it's just such a wide breadth of information to be really excellent at what you do. Yeah, and I think it's the one department that's not tangible as well. You can't measure it. Physical, you can measure. Technical, you can measure or see outcomes. Just psychology-wise, it's hard to see what's going on in someone's head a lot of the time. So it makes it really challenging for for coaches for sure. Well, and I think you know there's some interesting challenges too when we talk about the psychology across the different levels. So at the at the youth aspect, right, our players are are still learning most of these concepts that we we highly value and take for granted. So like the psychology you're managing is someone learning to goal set or someone learning to deal with disappointment. Like they've never done it before. This is all brand new. You're helping guide them, guide them through it. You know, at the, at the high school level, you start uh, young, you know, young athletes are now, it's not just their attitude towards the game, but I think we've all seen someone who social life or uh, dating life or, you know, these other areas that can from year to year change them almost completely because they they get into different things and then you get the adult uh you know athlete and it's like uh you know i can tell you how much has my psychology changed or my, you know my life changed just since having children and so like you you do your best you scout a player you do this great psychological profile on them you think they're the perfect fit well six years later they're married with two kids and it's like, you know, their their values have completely changed. And as their values change, then how they apply it psychologically to maybe their craft or their their sport changes. And so it's not just that it's so difficult. It's it's an ever changing, you know, that's part of the human existence is that we're we're ever changing based on on our experiences and, and our growth as well. So that 25 year old psychological profile that you re recruited or drafted might be very different than the 32 year old who you're now dealing with at the end of his career. Well, 
And I think, listen, we've come quite quickly to the time that we'd set for this. So I'm going to ask you one last question. Um, and I haven't asked you half the stuff that I was going to do, but we can rearrange that for another date maybe, um, which is who's the most impressive coach or athlete you've worked with and why? Holy mackerel. So, I mean, I, I've gotten to be around some some really great coaches in in, in my time, just as far as like uh, being with the the rugby with USA Rugby. We brought in quite a few consultants, and so I got you know weekend training camps and week events with you know all all of the the, the big names and and all of the kind of the the best people. Uh, my father was a coach and I'd be remiss like if I if I didn't say his what his impact had on me. Um, you know, I, I tell people that, you know, when my father would come home from a game, they won or they lost, you know, and it like, you know, it was happier. He was sad. And, it, you know, it, those lessons rub off on you about what sport can mean to people and the value of, uh, you know, of hard work and the players that he appreciated most on his team you know, without saying anything. So it wasn't a direct lesson, but the players that he most revered on his team, as a young kid, you start to see a pattern of the values that they exuded. And you start to think like, those must be important things. Those must be good in life. And so um, I think, you know, that that's obviously 100% made me the person that I am as far as uh, you know, how I learned what was important, what led to success and what values were, uh, were, were used to the, the answer for me and my sport journey, you know, my father was definitely the, the personal journey. And like I said, it was coaching. He wasn't coaching me and the impact was on me as a man by, by seeing who and what he valued in his players and, and even as assistant coaches and all that thing. But I played uh, at Penn State, and when I was a linebacker there, uh, the coach I played for was a gentleman named Ron Vanderlinden. And Ron Vanderlinden is the most successful linebacker coach in the history of college football. Uh, and people argue because we love to argue about coaches, but if you look at the stats and the people he coached over over the years, uh, n no coach has had more award-winning players and the number of draft picks uh, that he had and the number of, of, you know, like high level people is just amazing. And, and the, the, the impact on, on me was that as far as coaches being a teacher, everyone says that, but until you've, at least for me, until I played for a, a teacher of the game in that, of that caliber, it was just stuff people said on TV. And I think there's a lot of, a lot of coach isms or sport isms that everyone says on TV and all the pundits write about in the newspaper. And, you know, I'm big on lived experience and I we talk about how grappling is learning opportunities. If you've never been in that situation with an actual expert, it sounds grandioso on TV but you can't even imagine like the impact that it had just the, my understanding of the game, I, the, the knowledge, the, you know, some guys are yellers and motivators. Some guys are, are whisperers and, and some guys are just old school teachers. And as a teacher, 
it, it was one of the most impressive things that, that, that I've ever seen. It had a huge impact on me. And I really think that it, uh, it, it got ended up guiding me into this position where I myself humbly, like I, I teach other coaches to how to be better coaches, hopefully. And, uh, and I think a lot of it has to do with, with that. But if you can coach, you know, I don't know, five Butkus and six Lombardi award winners. And when he was the head coach at Maryland, they had guys like, you know, EJ Henderson and, you know, all these great award winners. Then he was at Penn state and he was at Northwestern back in the day with Barry Gardner and Pat Fitzgerald. And you just go, how can you go across 30 years and four schools and produce a Butkus and Lombardi award winner at each and every place you've been? Like you have to know something about this position and how to pull it out of people. And, and I think that that was hugely, hugely impactful to me. And then to be in the room and do it for four years, like to go through their, his process, I guess you call it, you go, wow, like there's levels to this stuff. And it's pretty cool when it's done at a, at a really, really world-class uh, level. Maybe that's one to discuss that process for another day. But listen, Andrew, really appreciate your time. Those are great content. And hopefully we can go through maybe some of the playing stuff and whatnot, which we didn't even touch on at another date. But yeah, really appreciate your time. No, thank you. Always always happy to chat. Uh, thanks for the opportunity. And again, hope everyone has a a great holiday and, and uh, uh, would love to do it again sometime because like you said, there's uh, a lot, a lot to share and, and uh, a lot to be told. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative Podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.